If you were here last week, you know that we have launched into a new series of talks that we call Steps. And uh, we do this every year. And the reason is, is these steps, we believe, are not the way, but they are a way. Can I say that again? They're not the way, but they are a way for us to walk forward in our walk with God. They're a rhythm of growth and spiritual development in our lives. And so our commitment as a church is that we would all have the steps operating in our lives at all times. And we get this out of 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. It says that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. To walk with God is to become more like God. To walk with God is to become more like God. Transformation, change, freedom is a fruit of our salvation. Things in our lives that do not reflect the Lord's glory are exposed in his glory. We see this when Isaiah, the prophet, is swept up into heaven. And Isaiah 6 says that he saw the Lord. He saw him with an unveiled face. He saw him high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And it goes on to say in verse 5 that Isaiah's response to seeing the glory of God was, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's a connection when we see heaven to things being exposed in our lives so that we can experience forgiveness and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. To know God, to see God, is to be transformed into the likeness of God. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? And and, and we want to be a people that don't just talk about these things, but we experience them. That we're not just like talking about like, oh yeah, in church, cool, like in this, like so fun. It's like we, we're here to meet the living God, with, to contemplate his glory with an unveiled face, to be transformed into his likeness. And the steps help keep God in view. The steps are a rhythm in our lives that we can operate from that keeps God in view to encounter him. The steps are encounter, matter, belong, grow, and build, right? Can we just like say it along, right? Like encounter, matter, belong, grow, and build. Come on, church. Look, Austin FC this afternoon plays for an opportunity to, to be in the MLS Cup. And I know that you are going to be louder than that at 2 o'clock this afternoon when we play the pagans in L.A., all right? Like, so we're going to say this, and, and we're going we're to tap into the fire that is in your belly that's misplaced. We misplace the fire that we have in our belly. Do you know that? We misplace it, and we put it upon things that don't matter. And then we come to church, the things that do matter, and we're like, encounter, belong, matter, 
spilled. And people are going to be ripping their clothes off this afternoon for Austin FC. All right, so let's just tap into the fire that's in you. And let's say this rhythm that will bring transformation in your life. Okay, you ready? Encounter, matter, belong, grow, and build. That's right. That's right. And God, give us a victory today. Step one is encounter because it is the foundation where really the fruit of all of the other steps come from. If we are not first encountering God, nothing else that we do matters. Pastor Chris did a phenomenal job last week of opening for us the, the revelation that, that, that encounter is more about a position than it is about an emotion. That the emotions we experience in encountering moments with God are real, but the fruit of encounter is not emotion, it's transformation. And so we position ourselves, we discipline ourselves in places of encounter because we want to see the fruit of encounter manifested in our lives. So we daily come to the Lord. We daily open our Bibles and read scripture. We daily worship. We daily pray because we want to encounter him. That position, that disciplined place of positioning yourself for encounter leads to transformation in your life. The goal is to be with him because when we're with him, we are changed by him. And let me just go ahead and stir the pot. Can I just go ahead and just, I know it's early. I know I've only been in there about five minutes. I've only said two jokes, but let me just go ahead and piss some of you off, okay? Let's just go ahead and get out of that. Let's just get it out of the way. If you are coming to church every Sunday or every other Sunday or statistically every fourth Sunday, if you're coming to church, but you're not experiencing transformation in your life, you're not encountering God. You are encountering a God that you've made in your image, and that God has no power. And what we do is we shape God in our image and we're just like, we, we create the truths that we want to be obedient to that fit the vibe that we want to carry in our lives. Oh, I don't like that part. Ooh, this part makes me tough. If you don't come to church and get offended every once in a while, then you're not hearing the Bible. This is a crazy book. It calls you to radical things. But what we've done is we create God in our image that leads to no transformation. And so we go back to life as normal on Monday, not living our life through a God lens of encounter, of transformation. And then we want to blame God for things that happen in our lives. This is the Western revelation of Christianity. That's not why I'm here. I hope it's not why you're here. I'm here to meet the living God, the one that put breath in your lungs, who spoke into existence everything that you were experiencing. I want to align my life with him. I don't want to think that I understand how the universe works better than him. And this is what we have done now in culture, just so you know. It's God in our image. It's not we are made in his image 
But since some of his image makes us uncomfortable, we just say, you know what? I'm going to forget that part because it doesn't fit my flow. And it's a powerless faith. It leads to no change and no transformation. Therefore, we look like the world in the world and we wonder why we're not reaching the world. We're supposed to be in it, but not of it. And we're not of it because we experience the living God and to be with him is to be changed by him. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See him, encounter him, contemplate his glory. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. There's a way that heaven operates and a way that earth operates and set your mind on things above for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put to death. To encounter him is to be changed by him. It's to be transformed into his image. It's to reflect him. Our lives look different after being with the living God. And that's why step one is encounter. It's because we want to contemplate and reflect the glory of God. And step two is birthed from step one. And we call it matter. Mattering. And it's just simply rooted in understanding that that when we all live for him and through him, Jesus knits us together for his glory and his story on the earth. The power in the church is greater than the function of the church. The power of the church is greater than the function, the the function of the church, the goal, why we exist. It's a place to worship God, to equip the saints and to reach the lost. That is the function of the church. And that function is the hope of the world. But there's also power in the picture of how the church works, how the church operates. The Bible compares the church to the human body. We are the body of Christ. And in the body, each part plays an important role function within the system of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but, it, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Each of us has a significant part to play to see us become all that God has called us to be. 2 Timothy 2 says it this way, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any, everybody say any, any good work. This large house that Paul, the writer of Timothy, is talking about is the church. 
And, and this church is filled with all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of gifts and different kinds of skills. And some of them might seem small and some of them might seem big, but all of them given over to who Jesus is, is useful and is prepared to do any good work. Something that we say a lot around here is that you were made on purpose for a purpose. You were made on purpose for a purpose. And when you step into what you are made for, it doesn't just have an effect on you. It has an effect on everyone who is around you. We see this in the book of Esther. I love the book of Esther. If if you are looking for a book of the Bible to read, let me encourage you and recommend to you the book of Esther. The book of Esther is absolutely a fascinating read. It has a few key characters that you need to know. First is Esther, this, this unexpecting girl who becomes central in the story to this Jewish people being saved from total annihilation. Then you also have her uncle who is named Mordecai. You have this dude named Xerxes who's the king of Persia who's kind of a little bit like a frat boy. And then you have Haman who is the villain in the story. And it's crazy, man. This, the book of Esther has everything. Drama, sex, rags to riches, like revenge, justice for the oppressed. I mean, it is a page turner. Read your Bible. It's good. But how this story begins is you have the king, King Xerxes, on the back end of a 180-day celebration just for how cool he thinks he is. That's what kind of guy this is. You're going to find that as we walk through this story, he's a real class act. And so he says, you know what we're going to do at the end of this 180 days of celebrating how rad I am? We're going to have a seven-day bender. So they are now in a seven-day bender on the back end of a 180-day celebration. He is plastered, drunk. He is absolutely wasted with all of his friends. And he looks at his friends and he's like, you know what, boys? I'm not only the coolest guy. I'm not only the king. My wife is the hottest chick in all of the kingdom. And his boys, as they do, are like, prove it! And so he calls for his wife. And he says, hey, I want you to dance and strip for us so I can show them how amazing that you are. And his wife says, I'm not doing that. Can we all just say, go Queen Vashti? Right? She's like, I'm not doing that. You're a moron. So she leaves and his boys are like, yo, you're going to let your wife talk to you like that? And he's like, you're right. No, I'm not going to let them talk to me like that. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to divorce Queen Vashti, and I'm going to make a law that every wife has to do exactly what her husband says. How do you think that went over in, the king, in, in Persia? How, how, do you, how do you think those conversations went at the dinner table? You know what I'm saying? I'm sure a lot of wives were like, uh-huh, sure. So then Queen Vashti gets canceled. For doing the right thing. She's gone. She's divorced. She's out of the kingdom. She can't even come around anymore. She's out of there. And so you, you have ki- the king Xerxes is now like, you know what? You know how I'm going to find the next queen of Persia? Let's have a beauty pageant. This guy is classy. Can you feel the class? 
coming from this guy? He's like, we're going to have a beauty pageant, and this is how we're going to find who the next queen is going to be. This is who I am going to marry is whoever the winner of the beauty pageant is. And so he sends his homies, which can we just say, you're a reflection of your crew. When you read the book of Esther, you know who got the king in trouble? The people around him. That one's for next week. But he gets his homies and he's like, y'all go find every hot single lady that's in Persia. So they go, they round up every pretty girl that's not married. They bring them to the palace and they take a year, a year of beauty preparation, whatever that means. Okay? So this is a commitment to the pageant. They're working on the song they're going to sing or the dance they're going to do, whatever it is, right? They're doing their thing. Now, here's the thing. Esther gets swept up into this crew of all the single ladies. Can we just sing the song? All the single So she, she gets swept up into this crew, right? And she is gorgeous. Everyone loves her. She becomes everyone's favorite, including the king. She wins landslide victory. Esther, who is actually a Jew, now finds herself as the queen of Persia. Now, this is where the story gets a little bit crazy. So now you have (laughs) Uncle Mordecai. Uncle Mordecai hears that there's a plan to kill the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and then Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Put that over here. That's a little important part. Then there's this dude named Haman. You guys remember Haman? He's the villain, okay? He's the bad guy, all right? And so Haman becomes like the right-hand man of the king of Persia. And so he gets this highest place of honor, the highest place that you can get without being the king. It goes to Haman's head. How many of you know that power corrupts everybody? It goes to his head. And so now he thinks, I'm going to make everybody bow down to me. So he starts walking the streets, telling people, yo, bow down to me. I'm Haman. I'm the man. Bow down to me, whatever. And so, you know, people are like sheep. And so they're like, okay, sure, you know. And then he comes to Uncle Mordecai, who is the uncle of Esther, and he says, bow down to me. And Mordecai's like, no. I'm not bowing down to you. You're not my God. I'm not going to do that. Now, understand the timing. This is 100 years after the Jewish people had been freed from Babylonian captivity. So you had some Jews that had left and returned to Jerusalem, but some Jews actually had stayed in Persia, and Mordecai was one of those Jews. And he's like, I'm not bowing down to you. There's no way I'm bowing down to you. You're ridiculous to think that I'm going to bow down to you. This infuriates Haman. He's like, okay, bet, watch. Watch what I could do. He finds out Mordecai's a Jew, so he goes to the king, and he says, hey, I got a great idea. Let's kill all the Jews. And the king's like, love it. Remember, you're a fruit of your crew. And and so he's like, okay, cool, let's do it. So he makes this decree. We're going to kill everybody. We're going to kill all the Jews. It's going to happen on this day. And they actually roll some dice. You know, they were gamblers. They roll some dice. Probably why the Baptists say you can't do it. They roll some dice. And they're like, you know, look, dude, in a year, we're not going to be, we're going to kill all the Jews. And, and, And so Mordecai finds out about this. And all this is happening because Haman is mad at one guy. Haman is mad that Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so he's like, oh, 
dude, I'm going to kill everybody because I want to get back at this one guy. Mordecai finds out about this plan to eliminate the Jews, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Like, these are like grieving clothes. This is what you put on when you're like mourning a death. And he goes into the street, and he begins to act a fool. He is screaming and crying and throwing a massive fit. And he does this like a one-man grieving parade all the way up to the palace gates. And he makes such a scene that Esther is like, Uncle, dude, you are embarrassing me, Uncle. Here's some clothes. Dude, change. Like, you're killing me. Like, what is going on? Nobody died. And he's like, no, you don't understand Haman is going to kill all the Jewish people. You have to stop it. Go tell the king. And Esther's like, ooh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Because there's a law, and we've already seen that the king makes really great decisions, right? Like he, this guy seems to be trustworthy. And there's a law that says if you go into the king's court uninvited, you will be killed. And so she's like, no way. I'm not going. I'm not going to go tell the king about this. Are you kidding me? This is going to cost me everything. I don't want to become like Queen Vashti, canceled, kicked out of the palace, kicked out of the kingdom, maybe even worse, put to death. And Mordecai looks at her in Esther 4, verse 13, and he says, don't think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I love that. How many of you know that God is going to do what God has planned to do? God is going to do it. And he says, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your families will perish. And he says this, and who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe you've been put in this place for this moment. Maybe, Esther, it matters that you're right here, right now, because there is a moment that can change not just your life, but could affect all of our lives. Do you know why this was a wrestle? Because mattering moments always cost you something. Moments that matter always cost you something. Standing up for what's right might cost you your reputation. Standing up for truth might cost you your position. Mattering moments always cost you something. Serving somebody might cost you your time. Meeting someone else's need might cost you your money. Mattering moments always cost you something. And Esther was wrestling with, do I want to pay the cost of mattering in this moment? The story goes, I want to be like Esther. She makes the right decision. She stands up for the people. And all the evil that Haman had planned for Mordecai and the Jews actually happened to Haman and his household. 
And the Jews experienced an incredible victory and deliverance that day because God is faithful to deliver his people. And we have moments that matter in his story for his glory. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now, we hear stories like this. Did you like that summary of the book of Esther? We hear stories like this, and it's easy for us to get pumped about wanting to have an Esther moment. Right? Like this, this strikes a very clear American chord. This touches that thing in all of us that wants to matter. We call that now being an influencer. You have a whole generation of people that want to be an influencer so that they can have a platform so that they can push what they think matters. There was like a survey that was done to a bunch of Gen Zers and they said 80% of them would like to be an influencer if they had the opportunity, which in and of itself is kind of a funny thing. I'd like it if it comes to me, I'd like to be an influencer. (laughs) If I have the opportunity, I'd love it. That in and of itself shows you the backward path to what we have called influence in our culture. And so the story of Esther is exciting because you're like, dude, I want an Esther moment. I want such a time as this moment. I want a moment that can change the course of history. I want a moment that can affect my life and my family's life. I want to be able to have that moment. I want to have that opportunity to be able to stand up and do what's right and God to vindicate me and my family. That seems super exciting and very cool. I want to be an influencer. And then you, you mix that with our like, hyper focus on self-discovery that's now really popular where you can take about a million tests that will tell you what you like, who you are, what you should do, where you should go, where you should live, where you're going to be the most happy, what career is going to be the most fulfilling for you. Right? I'm an INFTJ, PWQ, I'm a three on the Enneagram, whatever. Choose your source of ranking yourself, defining who you are. And look, these are great tools that can be very helpful for us. But they're tools. They're tools. And here, can I just like, since I've already been shooting a little straight, can I just fire another bullet across the bow here? Like, I think we are missing as a culture moments that matter because we become obsessed with what the moment is versus where the moment happens. Because we want to be influencers, and so we only want to engage in what we feel matters versus understanding that oftentimes it's where God has us that matters. And so you have a generation of people, you have people that are looking to the next thing, looking past the thing right now. Oh, if only this happened, if I only had this, if I only had this many people following me, if I only was in this position, if I had this job, if I was in this position in my company, then I would do something. If I only had this, if someone would give me some money, then I could support things that matter. And so we just like keep going, oh, I just need to wait for the moment of what it is versus understanding that where you are matters. Where is way more important than what Do you know what gave Esther the power in the moment? It was where she was. It was where she was that gave her the power in the moment to do the such a time as this thing that was in front of us. And we get so focused on what things are that we forget 
the importance of where things are happening. Let's just get like really practical, like serving in kids. Serving in kids. And you're like, yo, we were just talking about Esther and like saving a whole, a whole like people group and you shifted to serving in kids? Yes. Yes, I did. Because we, we are raising up another generation of people with a biblical worldview and putting in them a root system that is going to help them navigate through the complexity in life. And so you might be like, no, 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 I'm an INTPJ. Like, I, you know, I'm an, I'm an introvert. That's not what I do. You know, I, like, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Like, I'm, you, know what I, you know what I do? I'm a project manager. That's what I do. So if you need someone to manage projects, you need somebody to get somebody done. If you need somebody to move the ball forward, hey, come talk to me about that because that's where I want to serve because that's what I want to do. Versus understanding that it's where you, is, where you are that matters way more than what you are doing. Psalms 84 verse 10 says, it's better, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be on the fit team. I'd rather be in the parking lot waving to people when they come in. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Where is so much more important than what? And we become so obsessed, so self-absorbed as a culture that we only serve in areas and think that we want to matter in places that fit who we are perfectly. This is why now the average time someone stays at a company is like three years. It used to be like you started working for a company, you worked for them for forever. Now it's like three years, they don't understand me, they don't get me. This is too hard. Oh, this is, I'm gonna go to some place where I can matter because right here, I don't feel like I matter here. I don't feel like they see me for who I am. I don't feel like they're using my gifts. I don't feel like they're using me for who I am. And so we have a group of people now that are hopping from from company to company to church to church, from relationship to relationship, looking for where they are validated versus saying, you know what, it's better for me to be in the house of God, in the family of God, than to be anywhere else. Where you are matters sometimes more than what it is that you're doing. I remember I went to college and, and, and my first Sunday visiting Antioch, I was 19 years old. I had gotten involved in music from a very young age and I had literally that summer recorded playing drums on my first studio album and I thought I was like the coolest guy in the world. And I go into the, the auditorium, at, at really we're meeting at like a convention center. I go into the convention center. The drummer is horrible. At the end of church, I walk up to James Mark Gully, who's the worship leader. And I'm like, hey, dude, look, I'm a freshman. I love this church. I mean, I play drums. I'm here to serve. And when I said I'm here to serve, I said, I, I meant I'm here to play drums. And he's like, awesome, can you be here next week at 7 a.m.? I'm like, absolutely. He's like, great. I show up at 7 a.m. next week, drumsticks in hand. He's like, yo, you see that screen over there? 
set that up. I'm like, maybe you misunderstand me, dude. Like, I'm a drummer, pretty good. Like, I'm definitely better than that guy. And, like, you need me to play drums. Like, I'm here to help you, bro. Like, he's like, great, great. Thank you, thank you. You see that screen over there? Can you set that up? I was like, sure. I was like, set it up. I'm thinking, all right, cool. Next week, he's like, be here at 7 a.m. All right, right on. Show up, drumsticks in hand. Hey, man, you see that screen over there? You want to set that up? I'm like, sure. I, I, I set up the screen every week for like four months before they even listened to me play the djembe, which doesn't even count. All right? If you tell me you're a musician and I say, what do you play? And you say the djembe, you're not a musician. Okay, and so like, and so it's like three months before they even let me play the djembe. And you know what? I got a little offended. My feelings got hurt a little bit. I'm like, I'm better at that than the guy who's doing it right now. They're, they're, They're looking past me. But you know what? It's where I was that mattered in that moment. Way more important than what I was doing. Because where I was taught me two very important things. It's what happens off of the stage that's way more important than what happens on the stage. And it actually put me in really great relationship with the pastors of the church that I was a part of. And I got to see their life off of the stage and became way more impressed with who they were off of the platform than who they were on the platform. And I got to experience that because of where I was, not because of what I was doing. Church, we need to get back to be obsessing about where we are versus what it is that we're doing. Because God has put you where he's put you on purpose for a purpose.